Or as most of you know, I have recently finished up my last series, Words from the Cross, a few weeks ago. And then I challenged you the last time I spoke to go and share the good news of the cross out there in a, to a lost and dying world. Amen. So it's my prayer that you have uh, picked up that call and continuing to carry that call to just go out there into the highways and the byways of life and share the good news of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us on Calvary's cross. Amen. Uh, I'm not sure where I'm going to go yet. The Lord has put a few things on my mind and on my heart concerning a series or where we might go. And I'm just trying to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit when we go there. I'm developing a few things. But tonight, for whatever reason, I leave it up to God. He has led me to talk about a couple words. I struggled with the title. The title I came up with was simply lawlessness. I want to talk tonight about sin and lawlessness, but I also want to talk about I must die. Uh, I was trying to figure out how to put those two together in a title, and I couldn't figure that out, so I'm just going to tie together in the Word. Amen? But what, what I want to do tonight is talk about the very evil that has the power to separate us from the promises of God. Has the power to separate us from the power of God, the provisions of God, the, the protection of God, and even from the presence of God in our lives, two words, I believe, that have the power to bring us all into bondage, just like they brought the children of Israel into bondage several times uh, that we find recorded in the word of God. However, I don't want to just talk about sin itself. I want to talk about how we might overcome it in our lives as well. Amen. It's one thing to talk about sin and the negativity of sin, but it's another to understand how we can overcome it in our lives, whether it's big sin or small sin. God wants us to be able to overcome it. Amen. So before we get into the word of God, let's just go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father God, I thank you that you are in this place. I thank you that you are in this house. I thank you that you have a word that has been designed for your people. God, I thank you that you take the time to speak to us. God, that you care enough about us to give us truth and revelation, to give us insight. You care enough times to reprove us or even rebuke us. You care enough to build us up in the most high faith. And I pray whatever your will is for us tonight, God, it might be different for each individual, but I pray that your will would be done. I pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit, Father, as you always grant us each and every week. God, I pray that you would arrest my mind and my mouth and that you would bring them under your control and under your authority. I pray for every listener and every individual that's in the house tonight, God, that you would give them ears to hear as you always do. But more than anything, you would give us hearts that are willing and ready to receive, God, and not just receive, but respond. As Pastor Darrell preached, God, that we would be able to respond to your word this evening. We give you the praise and the glory and all of God's people said, amen. If I were to ask you to share the first thought that comes to your mind when you hear the word sin, now, many of you would think of things like adultery or homosexuality or maybe some other form of sexual misconduct or perversion. And many of you might think about things like murder or theft or some other sort of physical assault. It's quite possible when I ask you to hear or ask you to think about the word sin that you might have thought about things like hatred or strife or jealousy or anger or maybe envy. Maybe pride came to mind or unforgiveness, maybe lying or cheating or gossip or 
some other thing that would be displeasing to the Lord. But whatever your first thought was when you heard the word sin, the list of sins can go on and on and on. Amen. I believe they're innumerable. But whatever your first thought was, what we need to remember and be reminded of tonight is that man's first sin was none of those things that I just listed. Man's first sin wasn't most of what some of us thought about this evening. The truth is, Adam didn't go off and committed adultery in the Garden of Eden. He didn't go off and have an affair. He didn't go sleep with some strange woman that God didn't give to him. He didn't go off to some secluded corner of the garden and get drunk or go off to do drugs. He didn't go off to some secret place in the garden to watch a peep show. He didn't rob a convenience store. He didn't assault his wife. He didn't murder his next door neighbor. Yet the Bible tells us that his sin was so serious that it brought all of creation, all of mankind, including you and me, into captivity and into bondage. His sin was so severe, according to the word of God, that that it expelled them from the Garden of Eden church and put them under a curse, a curse whose bitterness you and I still taste today. Amen. And I don't know about you. I don't like the taste of that curse and I don't like the bitterness of that curse. So the question is, if if the sin that was committed in the Garden of Eden isn't the things that we just talked about or some of the things that might have come to your mind. The question is, what did they do that brought so much destruction or devastation upon mankind? What did they do that actually turned paradise into pain? What act of sin was so severe that it severed them from God? Simply put, it was an act of disobedience. Simply put, Adam and Eve failed to obey God and they did what was right in their own eyes instead of in the eyes of God. In all reality, they overruled the authority and the government of God that had been established in their life. You know as well as I do that God established a rule and he established a government in the Garden of Eden. And on this one occasion, Adam and Eve overruled the authority of God and the government of God. And because of it, they were expelled from the Garden because of an act of disobedience. And what we can't afford to forget is that every sin, every sin that we thought about, every sin that might have come to mind, every sin that we might be able to jot down and list on a piece of paper is nothing more than an act of disobedience. Every sin is a failure to yield to the authority of God or the government of God over our lives. It's a failure to obey God's will. The reality is disobedience is actually spiritual treason, church. It's actually an assault on the government of God over our lives. It's, a, it's an assault on the, the authority of God that has been established or tried to be put in place over our lives. The reality is disobedience is considered spiritual treason because it helps and aids the enemy. And I hope you and I understand that, that, that every time we disobey God, every time we do what is right in our own eyes, we aid and abet the enemy. 
We, we, we advance the, the kingdom of darkness instead of the kingdom of God. Disobedience aids and advances the kingdom of darkness rather than the kingdom of God. And that's why it is treasonous, church, because it aids and abets the enemy. And I'm laying a foundation because far too often it's what we do through our own acts of disobedience. The sad reality is far too many of us in the house of God and as children of God advance the wrong cause and we advance the wrong kingdom because of our own disobedience, whether it's small or whether it's big. Because the reality is every sin, big or small in our eyes, is an act of lawlessness in God's eyes. It's an act of breaking God's law and breaking God's will over our lives, church, and it separates us from God in the process. Every act of sin, every act of disobedience, every act of lawlessness in our lives separates us farther from God. It doesn't separate us from the love of God because we all know that the nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Amen. The Word of God tells me that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. It says that God demonstrated His love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, He died for us. So even though that that nothing can separate us from the love of God, even though your disobedience can't separate you from the love of God, it can separate you from the kingdom of God. And it can separate you from the blessings of God. And it can separate you from the provisions of God. And even from the protection or even the presence of God. What you and I have to understand is that in all reality, we cannot walk in lawlessness and in God's blessings at the same time. We cannot walk in disobedience. No matter how big or small that disobedience is, we cannot walk in in disobedience or lawlessness and in God's blessings at the same time. Because the Word of God tells me, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and does it. And not those who break it, church. You see, every time we disobey, we break God's law. Every time we disobey, every time we fail to yield to the, the, to the, the unction of the Holy Spirit in our life, every time we uh, fail to obey the Word of God that is spoken into our life or the instruction that He gives into our life, every time we fail to obey those words and, and that Spirit, we are walking in lawlessness, the Bible tells me. And it has the potential to separate us from the goodness of God and, and the things of God. Please understand when we yoke ourselves to the enemy through disobedience like the prodigal son did, he disobeyed his father and he went out and he yoked himself to a foreigner, the Bible says. But any time that we yoke ourselves to the enemy through disobedience like the prodigal son, we, we commit spiritual treason, you can say. And we can't expect the blessings of the father or his kingdom while we are yoked to the enemy. While we are under their authority or its authority, under the authority of the world instead of the authority of the Holy Spirit, instead of the authority of God, unless we repent and return and submit to his authority once again. You see, what you and I need to understand is that we can't live under the authority of one kingdom and expect the blessings of another kingdom. We can't live under the authority of this world, what this world tells us, how to think, how to dress, how to act, how to live, how to talk, how to do business, how to do marriage. We can't live under the authority of this world and expect to to 
gain the blessings of another kingdom. We can't live under the authority of this kingdom and expect the kingdom of God to come into our lives, church. 1 John 3, 4 tells us that disobedience is as sin and sin is lawlessness. It says this, everyone who sins or everyone who disobeys breaks the law. Every time, like I said, we don't do what God wants us to do, we break the law of God. In fact, sin is lawlessness, the apostle writes. And to give us a better understanding of where I'm going, the Greek word for lawlessness is anomia, and it's defined as this, the condition of being without law, either because of ignorance of the law or because of violating it. But either way, whether it is through ignorance or whether it is through intent, anomia tells me and and refers to the condition of being without law. It means that this individual is living without a governing authority over their life. It refers to the condition of a heart that has not God on its throne. That's what anomia, anomia means. It means that, that, that there is no governing authority, no, no righteous rule, that there's no higher authority that is governing its life. That's what anomia means, and that's what lawlessness is. It refers to the condition of a heart that has not God on its throne. You see, the reality is this, that every time we disobey, we take God off of our throne. Every time we disobey the word of God or every time we disobey the leading of the Holy Spirit in our life, every time we walk in our own ways instead of the ways of God, we take God and his rule and his authority off of the heart, the throne of our heart, and we walk in our own ways instead, church. In the eyes of God, lawlessness or anomia is the condition of being without spiritual law. And that's what we have to understand, spiritual law, righteous law, godly law. Because the reality is every single one of us will live under some sort of authority. Every single one of us will live under some sort of rule, whether it's earthly rule or whether it's heavenly rule, whether it's good rule or whether it's bad rule, whether it's godly rule or whether it's evil rule. Every single one of us will live under someone's rule and someone's authority. Some of us might live under our own rule, and some of us might live under our own authority. Doing what is right in our own eyes, church, that's living under our own rule and under our own authority. Some of us will live under the authority of this world or under the authority of someone or something else. But anomia anomia means the individual who is living without godly rule and without godly law, without righteous rule over their lives. It is the condition of being without righteous law or God's governing authority over us. And unfortunately, all you have to do is look around our society, look around our world, look around our neighborhood, and you'll find that that is the condition of our society today. They are living without righteous rule. They are living without godly law. They are, they are living without a higher authority dictating their decisions or their footsteps in life. And the sad reality is it's even the condition of a lot of Christians today. They have no righteous law in their lives. And I'm not saying this is you because I'm getting to another point. What I'm saying is even the house of God, church, is filled with anomia. Individuals who are not living with righteous law dictating their life. They know God. They sing to God. 
They even believe they are worshiping God. They give to God. They serve in the house of God. They even pray to God, church, but far too many are not governed by God. They're not ruled by God. He is not ruling in their life. He's not reigning in their life. He is not the ultimate authority in their life. He's not the final say-so over their life, and they are therefore lawless people in the eyes of God. You see, that's the reality. We can come into the house of God and we can sing praises to God and we can even pray to God and we can put money in the offering plate to God and we can serve in the house of God. But if we are not yielded to God, if we are not governed by God, if he does not have that rightful place upon the throne of our heart, then he still calls us a lawless people. Because we are not ruled and reigned by a higher authority in our life. We are ruled and reigned by our emotions or by our feelings or by our wants or by our desires or by our flesh or by our pride or or by greed, church. It's why we need a higher authority established in our life. And the sad reality is the spirit of Anemia is, is ruling and reigning in far too many individuals' lives in the house of God. Listen. The reality is when God is not the final say-so concerning your life, when God is not the final say-so, the the ultimate authority, when God is not the last word concerning how I live my life and how I make decisions and what decisions I make, when He's not the final say-so about who I date and who I marry and the things that I do and the places that I go, and if He is not the final say-so, the the ultimate authority in my life that dictates my footsteps and dictates my thinking and dictates the words that come out of my mouth, if he is not the final say-so as to how I live my life, then I am an individual of lawlessness. Because that's exactly what the Word of God tells me. These are not my words. And so what we must be careful of is that in everything we do, in word and in deed, we do under the authority of God. We do it under the leading of God, because if we don't, we are walking in lawlessness, the Bible tells us, and we and we will be separated from the good things of God, church. Far too many of us are not governed by God. In Judges 21:25, it says this, in those days, there was no king. In those days, there was no higher authority in the land, no godly government over the people. There was no righteous ruler in the land, the Bible says, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And far too often, too many of us are doing the same exact thing today, even in the house of God, because they have no king. There's far too many individuals in the house of God, church, that have no higher authority in their life. No godly rule over their life. No no set of godly standards that are established and, and, and that they are anchored to. So they do what is right in their own eyes. Listen to me. The reason that so many people do what is right in their own eyes... The reason that so many people are caught up in all sorts of sin, whether big or small, the reason that so many people are disobeying the word of God is because they just don't have the government of God established in their life. 
Why do you think I pray every single time I get up here, you will hear me pray, God, arrest my mind. God, arrest my mouth. Arrest my thoughts. Bring everything that I do while I'm standing up here behind the pulpit. Bring it under your authority and not my authority. And the reality is, if I do not pray that prayer every single day and every moment of my life, then I am nothing more than a man of lawlessness. That disobeys God. And that has to be your prayer as well. God, this day, arrest me. God, this day, bring me under your divine authority. God, I pray that today you would establish a higher rule and reign in my life. Over my mind, over my mouth, over my thoughts, over my words, over my actions. So that everything I do in word and in deed would be glorifying to you. You see, if we don't have a higher government established in our life, if we don't have a higher rule established in our life, if we are not governed and arrested by the authority of God, we are nothing more than lawless people. And we cannot glorify God in big things and small things. I'm not talking about gross sin here, church. I'm not talking about gross sin. I'm talking about... An act of disobedience. I'm talking about God told me to do something and I didn't do it. He told me to say something and I didn't say it. He tried to keep me from going somewhere, but I went anyway. He told me to turn the channel, but I kept it on that channel anyway. He told me to pick up the phone and call someone, or he told me to shut my mouth when I started to gossip and say things I shouldn't have. But I disobeyed church. Because I did not have the governing of authority, the governing rule of God established at that moment in my life. We must pray every moment, God, bring me under your divine authority so that I might be pleasing in everything that I do. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes because they had no king. Because they had no righteous ruler ordering their footsteps, no godly government that was guiding their path. The sad reality is in society and even in the church, they're walking in their own ways because they don't have a spiritual authority leading them, church. How many of you know we're living in a society where there's no more moral absolutes? We're living in a society where everything is relative. There's no right. There's no wrong. There's no black. There's no white. Everything is gray. Everything is acceptable. Everything is right according to each individual. Where we have come to, even in the house of God, is that we all have established our own set of rules for our life. Every one of us have created our own doctrine for living. Every single one of us have created our own rule and our own authority in life. And as long as it's okay with me, it's okay. But God said, listen, if this isn't your ruling authority, if this isn't the governing rule, if this isn't the final say-so in the things that you say and do in life, then you are a lawless person, church. Lawless. I'm not talking about evil, evil sin. I'm just saying when we don't obey God, we are lawless people. And God wants to remove that from the house of God and from the people of God. The reality is disobedience is so severe, church. It's so severe that God called it witchcraft in 1 Samuel 15. 
And when you read it, you'll find out that it cost King Samuel his throne. Listen to me. When we disobey, it costs us something. When you and I fail to obey the governing rule and the governing authority of God in our life, it always will cost us something. And some of you have experienced that. I know I have from time to time in my life. I've experienced the cost of disobeying God, even in the little things, church. It will cost us something. Just like it cost King Saul his throne, just like it cost Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden church. When you and I disobey, when we walk in what is called anomia or lawlessness without a governing righteous rule in our life, it will cost us something. Every time we disobey God, it costs church. We might not have to pay the price right then. We might not have to pay the price Tomorrow or, or next week or, or even next month. But please understand our sin will find us out. And I think all of you have been there at one place in your life. Think you can get away with it. But eventually our sin will catch up to us, church. And there will be a price to pay. And most of us will not be able to afford that price. So it's why God says, please establish a governing rule, governing authority, a higher authority in your life other than yourself or other than the kingdom of this world. Every time we disobey, we do damage to the kingdom and to ourselves in the process, just like Adam and Eve did and just like Saul did. Because every time we disobey the government of God in our lives, we aid and we abet the enemy. God calls it witchcraft. When you and I disobey, he calls it joining ourselves with the spirits of darkness instead of with the spirit of God. That's what witchcraft is. You know that? Witchcraft is when you join yourself with evil spirits. He calls it witchcraft or divination. And divination means you're being influenced by a different spirit other than God. That's what witchcraft is. It means that you are allowing an evil spirit or a dark spirit to have access to the throne of your heart and, uh, and allowing it to dictate how you live your life. That's what lawlessness is. And God calls it witchcraft because whenever we disobey, we are actually joining ourselves with evil spirits, church. I'm not saying we're being possessed, but we are joining in their work. We're joining in their cause. You understand what I'm saying? That's why I'm saying that it is aiding and abetting the enemy. When we disobey, we are not aiding and abetting the kingdom of God. We're not helping the kingdom of God. We're not advancing the kingdom of God. We're not advancing the cause of Jesus Christ. When you and I disobey God and his government, guess whose government we are aiding and abetting? We're aiding and abetting the government and the, and the, the kingdom of darkness, church. That's exactly why God calls it witchcraft. Because disobedience does not come from God. It comes from the devil. I hope we understand that. Remember, Lucifer rebelled against the government of God that was established over his existence. He rebelled. He disobeyed God. He, he usurped the authority of God and the, the rule of God. And he did what was right in his own eyes. He, 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 he was lawless. In his decisions, and that's exactly why disobedience is like witchcraft, because it comes from the spirit of Lucifer. And every time we disobey church, every time we disobey, we yoke ourselves to the wrong kingdom and we yoke ourselves to the wrong cause. 
Vine's Bible Dictionary calls sin or calls lawlessness the rejection of God's law and will and the substitution of self-will or our own will in its place. Say it again. It's putting my will over God's. It is, it is rejecting God's law in substitution of my own law. How many have ever been there? Create your own law. Create your own way. Create your own government. Create your own authority. That's what the world teaches you. If it feels good, do it. If you like it, have at it. This world teaches you the exact opposite of what the Word of God teaches us concerning a higher authority in our life, church. What we have to understand is that sin is any time our will replaces the will of God and why I is in the middle of every sin. Look at the word sin. I is right in the middle. I is in the middle of every sin. I is at the center of greed. I is at the center of lust. I is at the center of disobedience. I, I, I is at the center of, of envy or jealousy or, or wrath. I is at the center of every sin, church. And it's exactly why John said in John 3.30, I must decrease and he must increase. John was saying, because until I dies, and when I say I, the way I'm saying it grammatically, it might not sound right to you. But John was saying, because until I dies, until me, myself, and I dies, until the spirit of self, the spirit of I dies, until I dies, he is saying, until I me, myself, and I is crucified with Christ. Sin will always be at the center of my life. This is what he was saying. He said, I must decrease and he must increase because if I, if me, myself, and I doesn't die, then sin will always be at the center of my life. Then greed or lust or envy or jealousy or selfishness or, or pride or, or ego. If, if I doesn't die, then all of these things will always be at the center of my life. It's why I must decrease, John said, because until I dies, I will always be a man of lawlessness, John was saying. And so will we until I dies, until me, myself and I dies. You and I will always be people of lawlessness, church. It's exactly why in Galatians 2.20, Paul said something very similar. We all should know it. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer. Therefore, remember what does therefore mean? We've got to look back to see what that word therefore was there for. Therefore, since I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I. It is no longer me, myself, or I that lives, but Christ who lives within me. Look at it. It is no longer I, Paul said. It's no longer my will, Paul said. It's no longer my wants. It's no longer my desires. It's no longer my wants. It's, it's no longer my feelings. It's no longer my desires that are alive in me. Paul was saying they're not living in me. They're not moving in me. They're not breathing in me. They don't have authority over me. They have no impact on me. Me, myself, and I have been crucified with Christ. And now it is Christ that lives within me. Now it is Christ instead of I 
Instead of me, myself, and I that lives and moves and breathes in me, it is Christ that lives and moves and breathes in me and operates through me. It is Christ that rules in me and Christ that reigns in me and Christ that has authority over me. It is no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives within me. It's no longer my wants. It's no longer my passions. It's no longer my desires. It's no longer my greed, my pride, my flesh that are alive in me, Paul said. Because I, because me, myself, and I have been crucified with Christ, and now Christ is alive in me instead. Now Christ rules in me. Now Christ's will shall be done in me. Now Christ is seated in authority in me, church. Please understand the power of Paul's statement here. It is no longer I that lives, he said. Well, I wish we could truly say that. I wish I could truly say that every day. It is no longer I that lives. Me, myself, and I have no rule, reign, room in my life today. It's no longer I that lives. I wish I could say every day that my desires and my passions and my wants and my greed and my selfishness and my ego and my pride have been crucified, church. But that's why Paul said I crucify myself daily because he didn't want I to have any room in his life because he didn't want I to have any authority or rule and reign over his life, church. What Paul was saying is that every one of my desires are now dead. Every one of my wants are now dead. They no longer live in me. They have no influence over me. They have no authority over me. I is dead, Paul said. I has been crucified and Christ is now alive in me instead. It is Christ that is living and moving and breathing in me instead of I. Paul was no longer living in lawlessness. He was no longer living in opposition to God's will. He was no longer living in rebellion or disobedience to God's will. He was no longer aiding and abetting the enemy like he did as Saul when he persecuted the church. Because his eye was now crucified with Christ and our eye must be crucified as well. If we want to walk with God and talk with God, if we want to have the anointing of God, our eye must be crucified as well, church. Remember, Jesus himself said, not my will, but thy will be done. Understand, Jesus's eye died long before he died on the cross. Jesus died to himself at the foundation of the earth, the Bible tells me. He was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. At the beginning of time, Jesus' eye died. His eye died when he stepped down off the throne, church. He laid down his authority. And he did the Father's will in his whole life. He did what the Father bid him to do. The Bible says he never spoke a word that his Father didn't give him the authority to speak or the right to speak. He didn't do anything that his father didn't tell him to do. He didn't go anywhere that his father didn't tell him to go. He was completely obedient to his father because his eye died long before he died on the cross. And the reality is our eye must die as well. If we want to bring glory to the Father, if we want to bring glory to the kingdom, if we want to advance the cause in the kingdom of God, guess who has to die? I do. I'm not talking physically. I'm talking spiritually. 
I'm talking the flesh must die if Christ is to live in me. And the reason that Christ is so absent in so many of our lives is because we have yet to crucify I. It's because we have yet to take our flesh and our greed and our wickedness and our, our sins and our desires and our wants and our will and crucify them with Jesus Christ. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I that lives because I have been buried in the grave and now Jesus lives in me. I don't know about you. That's what I want every single day. I want people to see Jesus in me. I don't want them to see Jeff. I don't want them to see my flesh. I don't want them to see my wants or my desire. I don't want them to see my anger. Because the anger of God doesn't reveal the righteousness. I want them to see Jesus in me. And the only way that's going to happen is if I'm like Paul and I crucify I, church. I must die so that Christ can live. Thirty quarter after, I'm going to ask if we've got anybody to come to the music. They can do that. But here's what I want you to hear. Oswald Chambers, I don't know how many of you know him. Most of you probably do is utmost from a highest. He writes these words concerning Paul's words, it is no longer I that lives. And he gives greater meaning to these words than I think I've ever read before. And he says this, these words, it is I, it is no longer I that live. He says these words mean the breaking and collapse of my independence brought about by my own hands. In the surrendering of my life to the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, no one can do this for me. I must crucify myself. God may bring me to this point and to this place 365 times a year, but he cannot push me through it. I must crucify myself. It means breaking the hard outer layer of my individual independence from God and the liberating of myself and my nature into oneness with Him. Not following my own ideas and desires, but choosing absolute loyalty to Jesus Christ. Once I am at this point, there is no possibility of misunderstanding. It is no longer I. Very few of us know anything about loyalty to Christ. Very few of us understand what Paul meant when he said, it is no longer I. But until we do, we can never truly live. The Spirit would ask, has the breaking of our independence come? If not, we are nothing more than a religious fraud. The one point to decide is this. Will I give up? Will I surrender to Jesus Christ? Placing no conditions whatsoever as to how the brokenness will come. I must be broken from my own understanding of myself. And when I reach that point, immediately the reality of the supernatural identification with Jesus Christ takes place. And the witness of the Spirit of God is unmistakable. In our lives, I have been crucified with Christ. The passion of Christianity, he says, comes from deliberately signing away my own rights 
and becoming a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And until I do that, I will not begin to be a saint. And until we do the same, church, neither can we. We cannot be a saint while we walk in lawlessness. We cannot be a saint and walk in disobedience. We cannot walk or be a saint if I still lives within me. If me, myself, or I are alive in me, I can only become a saint according to the Word of God and reminded by the words of Oswald Chambers until I crucify myself. I have been crucified with Christ, is what Paul said. And for us to help advance the kingdom of God or for us to help advance the cause of God, for us to have any influence, for us to be salt and light like I talked about the last time I preached, how we are the ones that have been called to have influence out there in that world. Unless we have been crucified with Christ, we can't be that influence either. Unless it is Christ that's alive within us. Amen. Here's what I'm going to close with. The reality is God is looking for those whose hearts yearn to walk in obedience to him. The Bible says his eyes wander to and fro across the whole earth looking for those whose hearts are fully his. Whose hearts have come under the authority of God and the government of God and the the rule and the, the reign of God in their life. That's who he is looking for, church. So the second to last question that we have tonight is that when he looks at us, when he looks at you and he looks at me, what will he find? Will he find lawlessness or will he find obedience? In John 4.34, Jesus said, not referring to communion, he said, this is my bread. This is my food, he said, that I do the will of him who sent me. You see, the reality is Jesus hungered for nothing more than to do the will of the Father. It's why I came, he said. He said, I came that I might do the will of my Father. He didn't come for his own agenda, didn't come for his own cause, didn't come for his own glory, even though he is worthy of all the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. He didn't come to be glorified. He came to glorify the Father. And he did it through complete obedience. Every step that he took, every breath that he took, every word that he spoke, every deed that he did, he did it under the authority of of his father, which was in heaven. So the last question that I ask is, are we hungry for that same food? Are we hungry for that same bread? Are we hungry and thirsty for God's will to be done in our lives? This is my bread, Jesus said. This is what I live for. This is my sustenance. This is my only desire. This is the only thing that satisfies me. It's doing the will of the Father. I hope you understand what a powerful question that is to us. Is that what we hungry for? 
Are we hungry for that same bread? Are we hungry for that same food, church? Are we hungry and thirsty to do God's will or to have God's will be done in our lives? How many of you are ready and willing to eat the bread of God's will tonight? If that's you, I want to ask you to stand to your feet. If you're ready to eat the bread of God's will, I want you to stand.